This episode is sponsored by Echo. Hear clearly, care confidently. Learn more at echohealth.com. That's E-K-O health.com. And use code JSP for $50 off any stethoscope. Just Some Podcast Media. The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and exciting episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. Tom, how's it going, man? It is going swell, and I couldn't be more excited. We have one of our favorite guests back on the show, Jeff. Hello. And we are going to be talking about his favorite topic in the entire world, shoulder surgery. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) We're going to be talking about diabetes and maybe some updates and some new strategies for controlling it, but it's going to be a fun and informative episode. Jeff, I have a quick question for you before we get started. Uh Uh, Diabetes, still a problem? Oh, no. We cured it years ago. It's just a rumor that it's a problem. Let's just say I've had a few patients come in with A1Cs greater than 13 and one with an A1C higher than our lab could measure. Shut up. That's never good when the lab's high. Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. So just for my curiosity, where does the number stop? Like, where does the lab go? 18 or greater is bad. Our lab will get up to 15.9. Our lab stops at 14 because ours will just say greater than 14 if it's... Maybe my lab has some new equipment because I know I saw one over 15 the other day, so... Huh. Yeah, it gets it's pretty score. impressive. <laughs> well, I'm not saying score like I was happy about the A1C of 15. I just mean, hey, what do you know? My lab is able to measure Snickers bar in your blood. That's awesome. <laughs> and that is about what's circulating at that point. <laughs> I think that's a snack pack. Yeah, I drew up a snack pack out of this guy's vein. That's awesome. Well, Tom, how was your day, man? It was good. I'm just starting to dread Friday in general, but... Today was actually a pretty decent day, so no complaints for me. Leave it to you to dread Fridays. Yeah, cool. All right. Yeah, well, that, that makes very little sense. So, okay. Well, I don't know about everyone else's practice, but in my practice, it seems like every person that has forgot something throughout the week suddenly remembers it around 1.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and then wants to call my office asking for it. And when you're the only NP in the office – that gets real annoying real quick when you still have patients to go see. So well, you, you end up with a lot of crap on your shoes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, not always, but today was, you know, less fun than some days. So that's why I'm saying Fridays just tend to have evolved into, oh, I forgot all that other stuff I was told to do throughout the week. I'll just call Friday afternoon and they'll get me in or it'll happen. And then, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's not that I mind Fridays. I love Friday as the gateway to the weekend. I hate Fridays as in working it, is what I guess I should say. Fair enough. Jeff, how was your day? I sat around with ice on a shoulder. Is that a new diabetes treatment? Because I haven't done that one yet. Yeah. It's what happens when you get old and you keep tearing a rotator cuff. Oh. I thought you were just trying to get fluid through like osmosis or something. I was... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Fluid pressure osmosis right there. Yeah. I just taped the bag to me. Yeah, this was number two on the same shoulder. I, I don't recommend it. Well, if you're going to do it, do it well. So You know, it, they don't give frequent flyer miles. There's no discount. <laughs> no, how many times I wake up in this surgery bed, it's still the same. What's going yeah. on? Well, and the worst thing is, you know going into it what you're going to be dealing with afterwards. It's not a surprise. Yeah, I can see that you know being a problem because, yeah, you – Know what you're, what to expect. Know you're, what you're going to do as far as recovery, and get to look forward to all that. So, not that it's fun for Jeff, but I just had like this like little cut scene in my head of Jeff looking sad post recovery, and the song "Darkness, My Old Friend" <laughs> by Simon and Garfunkel playing. I was like, oh, that was Jeff a couple weeks ago. So there you go. 
little sadist. <laughs> that's our job. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how it felt. Well, I'm glad that you're, you know, upright. So, I mean, yeah. we got that going for us. And, and all things considered, it's it's four days out and pretty well managed for the discomfort. Good. I'm glad to hear that. So, when do you get to get back to work? I will be back to work. I ended up with a total of taking a two total of two weeks off. And yes, it took a little convincing. And do you think the diabetes guidelines will change during that time? <laughs> no. Okay, good. Uh, we've got until November, December before new guidelines will come out. All right, good. All right. We're up to date on that then. Well, Ben, uh, how was your day? It was nice. Yeah, don't put us on the spot with how our <laughs> yeah, day yeah, is. Yeah. Let's listen oh. to all this gloom and doom. And then Ben's like, no, I don't know what's wrong with you guys. It was a great day. No, my day was good. I seen patient in the morning. Uh, my office staff asked if they could have Good Friday afternoon off, which we're recording on Good Friday. So I said, sure. And so they took the afternoon off and I worked on charts until I needed to leave. So it wasn't a bad day. You hear the crickets for how much joy we have for you to be able to do that. Exactly. (laughs) I was sitting there watching him cough on video being like, I hope it hurts. I hope it burns a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Tom, let's do our social media shout out and then we'll jump into our story you may have missed and then we'll get into more diabetes with Jeff. So if you like our show and we know that you do because you're listening to it, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast. Our website's www.justsomepodcast.com. Email us if you want to sit in the seat that Jeff is sitting in right now, which would be a little weird because he's at home, but you can email us and we'll try to get you there. JSP at justsomepodcast.com. No, that's not happening. You're not sending people to the house. No, I think, I'll I'm set the sure. seat outside. They can sit outside. Okay. okay, I'm just saying it's the same seat. That's what we offered. So, okay. yeah, they can sit outside okay. in the same seat. <laughs> there you have it, folks. There you have it. Tom, Who wouldn't jump at that? <laughs> Aren't you happy you had me back already? Oh, oh, I, I, it's I'm only so been glad. a year. Wow, has it been that long? Yeah, it's been a year. It was. Uh, well, maybe it's been almost two years. It was around COVID. That Damn. that little thing that didn't exist. <laughs> yeah. That was barely it was a blip on the screen. Well, you know what, Ben, we're gonna have to have Jeff back more regularly. But in the meantime, if somebody wanted to help out the show other than flying to Jeff's house to sit in his seat, what they could do is they could go to our website, they could scroll down to just about the bottom of the page, they could click on the Amazon affiliate link. There they can do all their shopping, put anything in their cart. After they click on the link and then whatever they buy, a small part of the proceeds go to our show. We really appreciate it. Uh, it helps out and we would like to thank you for it. Yeah, absolutely. What's the most interesting thing you guys have uh, seen come across the, the stage in the last three months? Oh, last three months. Oh, honestly, the days of 55 gallon barrels of personal lubricant are gone. I haven't seen one of those in a while. I believe that was so. shipped to Jeff's house. So, ah, <laughs> so <laughs> out yet? So that 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 was what happened before my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But my question is: is what was the six pack of the six pack of spatulas? What was that for? I mean, it was all in the same order. So everybody has to have a hobby, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what your hobby is, Jeff, but I'm willing to learn. So. <laughs> And just so we don't freak anybody out, let me clarify that we can see what was purchased through our link, but we don't know who or where or anything like that. It just shows us basically the price you paid and then the amount that Amazon is going to kick back to us. So don't fret. We can't actually see what you're buying, Jeff. So it's okay. Maybe. (laughs) Allegedly. Allegedly. Uh, Beyond that, make sure you give us some ratings and reviews. That would really appreciate that. And don't forget to check out our other shows under the Just Some Podcast Media umbrella. We got Nurse Profit with David Metzger. We got Buried Pleasures of Polly and Amazing. And then we got we'll continue to monitor with two guys that are average at best. So average at best. And that's stretching it to be completely fair. I've heard some of their shows, and one of the guys sounds really cranky, like he kept messing up lines. I don't know if I would listen to that show, Ben. Stop it. We want them to listen to that show, too. So, Oh, no, I mean, listen to that show. That's what you should be doing. I'm sorry. I got the I got it mixed up on my notes here. Are you ready to get into your story that you may have missed, Tom? Do I have a choice? No. Oh, then yes. Well, it's going to be a short story that you may have missed, and you probably haven't missed it because you and I have already talked about it, and 
it's going to be a short story. So, you know, nurse practitioners have for years campaigned for full practice authority and the ability to practice up to the level of our education and training. And just this last week, New York state has passed full practice authority, becoming the 25th state, allowing full practice for nurse practitioners and a little state that I'm, you know, kind of partial to myself. Kansas also passed full practice authority and that they were the 26th state. And in Kansas, it will go into effect July 1, 2023. And I could not find the starting date for New York. Tom, thoughts? Yeah, I was just thinking about Kansas. And, you know, that's basically just a big you know, rectangle, right? Like you're partial. Absolutely. That's Colorado. To a rectangle. Colorado is more of a square. Kansas is definitely more rectangle. Jeff, I'm I need gonna, a ruling. I'm gonna, Rectangular-esque. I'll take it. Uh, that's a win, Ben. But it's Colorado. Yeah, but there's a big rectangle. bite that's been taken out of the out of the correct very that's northeast Kansas corner. City, uh, yeah, jerk. Kansas City. Actually, Kansas City, I really like. So I'm just kidding, Kansas City. I love you. But Ben, it's rectangular esque. What What about Wyoming? That's a square and doesn't really exist from what I heard. So, isn't it more of like a principality? I don't know what you call that place. I just know that it's somewhat there on maps, but I don't really know anything about it. I call it Tered, is what I call it. That's a great place. Yeah. On the on the full practice authority piece, wasn't there a reciprocity like the like we've got for the nursing licenses, the Nurse Compact Act? Wasn't there one that was supposed to be engaged once there was a certain number where a certain number of states that had pre- had passed uh, full practice authority or I've has the heard, time run out on it? I've heard like rumblings about that over the last several years, but I've not seen anything come to fruition. So I don't honestly know. Yeah, I would say I haven't heard anything about that, but I am very happy for Ben and the other nurse practitioners in both New York and Kansas. Do us proud, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, good luck because it's going to be a bumpy road, I think, getting this implemented. But I think after that, it's going to be really good. The APR and contract compact, I'm going to move us forward, <laughs> <laughs> was adopted August 12th, 2020. And that was to be implemented when seven states enacted the le- legislation. That's from the NCSBN. So I'm not sure how far that has gone. Because then you're going to have to have states approve it. Which and, I mean, you know, it took them long enough to approve nursing licenses, let alone yeah. advanced practice. So, I mean, what's something we'll kind of keep an eye on here at JSP, and we can uh, bring Jeff on next year to report on it as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> Tom, let's take a break here. And then on the other side of the break, we're going to talk all about the diabetes. Ben, how do you like using your 3M Litman Core Digital Stethoscope? I will tell you, I honestly use it every single day on every single patient, and it has greatly impacted how I am able to hear sounds more clearly. I also love the app that now, with it being upgraded and updated, detects murmurs and AFib, which is kind of cool. It is really cool, Ben, and I got to be honest, it's got 40-time amplification, it's got noise-canceling technology, it really is a game-changing piece of equipment, and I've said it a thousand times, and I'll say it a thousand more, if you use a stethoscope in your practice, you really need to hear one of these and get one of these. It will improve how you treat your patients. Yeah, we talk about it a lot, but I genuinely use this on every single patient that I listen to. If you want to find out more, you can find out more at echohealth.com, it's ekohealth.com. Use code JSP at checkout. They give you $50 off your order. Let them know that we sent you. Tom, how are those uh, CBD roll-ons for your shoulders? Ben, I've strained a chest muscle recently, and I got to be honest, I think the use of CBD stat products has really helped my recovery. They are some potent products, some of the top on the market, and they are 100% THC-free. They're made right here in the United States. And they love their healthcare people. They're giving healthcare people a permanent 40% discount. It's a permanent 40% discount just because you're in healthcare and because they know all the shit that we've been through the last several years. Go to cbdstat.care slash healthcare and fill out that form and it's going to give you that permanent 40% discount. And if you're sitting there going, but Ben, Tom, I'm not in healthcare and I got a sore shoulder. 
What can I do? Well, what you can do is you can go to cbdstat.care and you can put in the code JSP20 and get 20% off your total purchase and get the same high quality products that we were just talking about. Yep, all because you listen to our show. That is cbdstat.care. All right, Jeff. So, diabetes. It's it's bad. Go ahead and play the end music. We're good. That's no. Yep. There you go. That was the whole show. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for having me, guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thanks for keeping me up late, jerks. It just slams the mic down. That'd be pretty cool. So, I know that. The, I guess my first question to you is: There are. I'm gonna I'm gonna say an official pant load of products on the market currently. Mm-hmm. For diabetes, obviously, it's a big market that pharmacy companies or pharmaceutical companies are going after. So, how do you, as a practitioner, try to make your way through some of that? Well, part of it is following guidelines, and we've got two two organizations you can look at: the American Diabetes Association and then the American College of Endocrinologists. And luckily, their guidelines mirror each other fairly closely. The Endocrine Society, the biggest difference, I, in my opinion, is where how tight a control they want and at what point you go to more advanced treatment. The long and short of it with the ADA is they are recommending more aggressive treatment than they have in the past, especially out of the gate. You know, out of the gate, typical metformin, three months, see where they are then start adding. Depending on A1C now, they're recommending uh, two agents, whether it's an SGLT2 inhibitor or whether it's a GLP-1 receptor agonist on top of the metformin out of the gate. And then depending on where uh, their A1C goes and how well they're, how well controlled they are, there is the possibility of using both the SGLT2 inhibitor and the GLP-1 at the same time along with metformin. And in patients that don't tolerate that don't tolerate metformin, they're talking about these two agents as first-line agents. And depending on what other comorbidities, so if they've got underlying cardiac problems, risk for kidney disease, then you've got an even bigger indication to use these agents as a first-line agent. So, Jeff, one of my one of my problems in my practice has been I would love to get more of my patients on GLPs. I haven't had as big a problem with SGLT inhibitors. But those GLPs are real hard. Do we see any progress that insurance companies are going to start relaxing or making it easier for us to get those medications to our patients? I think if we can continue to prescribe appropriately and not use them off-label for things like, I don't know, weight loss, I think we'll have a better luck. The, the problem is, you know, these are costing – a thousand to twelve hundred dollars a month. That's GLT two inhibitors are anywhere from six hundred to eight hundred dollars a month on cash price. So it's not cheap for insurance companies. I think what you have to do is be able to demonstrate. I hate using the word compliance because it sounds punitive if they're non-compliant. Um, but I think you've got to look at having people going along with the program and actually trying to manage their disease effectively. One of the th- one of my throwbacks when I get pushback from insurance companies and have to call, have to get on the phone myself, I ask them if they really want me to go against the clinical practice guidelines from the ADA or the ACE. And eventually I get to somebody who realizes that I'm speaking very plainly about what their decision is and how it could potentially be detrimental to a patient. And that tends to help them see the light for getting approval. But then you're still looking at what the cost is to the patient. You know, all these agencies have discount cards, but if you've got a patient on Medicare, they can have all the discount cards in the world and they're still hosed. A couple of years ago, the CMS started permitting insurance or drug companies to provide patient assistance for patients in financial need. So that has been helpful. But then you've got folks who have to jump through some hoops with some paperwork, reveal some private information that a lot of people don't want to reveal just to get to, to be able to afford their medicine. 
the nice thing is the hoops that they have to jump through aren't terribly high. The bar that they have to clear for the insurance company or for the drug company is not terribly high. You know, for the low-income subsidy for folks who are on Medicare, um, I think it's they have to be 150 to 200 percent of poverty. For the drug companies, that line's usually about 300 to 350 percent of poverty. So they have a little bit more leeway for trying to meet the standard that gets them assistance. So is there ever a point with like a type 2 diabetic where say they come in the new onset, A1C 13 or whatever the case may be, do you ever just jump straight to insulin? Do you still try to rely on the oral patients? The guidelines are going to tell you that if you've got an A1C in the in the teens, you absolutely have a cause to start insulin out of the gate. And usually triple therapy, if you look at the grid, the guideline grid, triple therapy is recommended at that point. It's just hard to convince patients to do that. Oh, 100%. Yeah. One thing, since we were just talking about prices and medication, I thought was really interesting, and I want to hear how you feel it's going to impact us moving forward, Jeff, is the House, the United States uh, Congress last year voted in November to cap the price of insulin at $35. Do you think, or are you hoping, I should say, that this will make insulin more available? Like, do you think patients will become, I know you don't like the word compliant, but do you think this is the type of thing that will make that medication more available and therefore we'll see greater control overall? Or do you think the problem is still getting patients to be compliant regardless of the price of insulin? So the bill was introduced. Do you really think that's going to be passed? You've got the, the government know. setting, trying to set a price for in a free market. That's that is not going to end well. I think it's I think it's a very good PR piece, but the bottom line is I don't think that's ever got a chance of passing. That being said, you can go to a major retailer that has a generic insulin that is made by a I'm trying to be really careful with names here a place Ma- made by a company made by a company that makes a well-branded insulin and SG- and GLP-1 receptor agonist for $28 for a vial of 1000 units and now they are manufacturing pens for this large retailer. So I tell my patients, this is where you need to go to get it. I mean, that's the, if they can't take the medicine, if they can't afford the medicine, they can't take the medicine, they can't manage their disease. That's the bottom line. It would almost be like it's a mart of some sort. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You just have to make sure you don't get put up against the wall. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had me speechless there for a second. Uh, but, uh, I know. <laughs> so I know we kind of brought you on talking about like updates and stuff. So have you – because I know you're, you stay pretty well versed on this. You treat a lot of diabetic patients. and I know you have published articles about diabetes and, and family practice. So have the guidelines – may have once or twice. Or, you know, author in the year. I mean, you know, no big deal. Um, <laughs> have you seen the guidelines change significantly the last few years? I don't. In the last few years, the what the guidelines are doing are looking at making them more comprehensive and involving cardiac care and renal care and management of kidney disease. You know, the SGLT2 inhibitors, way back when, they were very nervous about using them in the presence of kidney disease and in fact recommended against it. Since then, it has actually been demonstrated to help prevent progression to stage four and stage five CKD with the use of SGLT2 inhibitors. So we've got the nephrologist that stole the drug from us. And then the cardiologists got in on the game and are using it now both for HEF-HEF and HEF-REF. 
So I was going to point out, Jeff got to it right before I did, is I actually had to consult with a nephrologist the other day about some medications, and this all came up. As a matter of fact, he could not tell me to start that patient on an SGLT fast enough. He was like, no, you absolutely want to start doing these things. So, and I mean, this was a couple months ago, so I was like, oh, okay. So yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic, and I think the support going that way, because a lot of times I... I have patients, they come in with like half information. Well, I heard from a friend whose brother is a diabetic. I shouldn't take this type of information. Now that I can give them, and hopefully in the future, as these more comprehensive guidelines are evolving, that we can say, no, 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 we know better. Do you feel that these guidelines are going to help treat overall, or is it just kind of polishing up what we already have and making it easier for practitioners to provide care for their patients? Like, do you really think it's going to make a change what they're doing? Or is it just, oh, we're, we're just cleaning up the stuff we already have? Right now with the medications that we have in our armamentarium, I think it's going to be more cleaning up and making making it easier to do a more comprehensive care package for your patient. There is a drug coming down the road. It's in stage three trials that is a combination GIP, GLP-1 receptor agonist. And if the data continue to demonstrate what they have demonstrated thus far is going to be a big game changer. So explain for everybody and myself included, the combination of the GIP and the GLP, why is that going to make it work better? And why do we want to start making sure our patients are on that medication? Or can you speak to it? Like is enough evidence and and stuff out yet? There's not enough out to go into a whole lot of depth with it. GIP, you're still working in the accretin system in the gut with it. And so what you're telling the body to do is to manage the glucose and manage how the glucose is used and delivered in a more effective manner. Hmm. Interesting. As you said, that's in stage three trials now. I think you're I think we're probably two years away from it. Is that gonna be injectable? Yes, it's it's gonna be another injectable. You know, there's only one oral uh, GLP one receptor agonist on the market, and part of the reason is the molecule is not stable in the gut or in the stomach. It has to get into the gut for it to be effective. I don't think that companies are going to try and spend the money in R and D to compete with this one. It, I still think we get better numbers with the injectable medications than the oral medication that's on the market. So you you mentioned numbers. That brings up a question that I have for you. So going back to, say, a, a diabetic new onset, say the A1C is we'll, – we'll drop it so it's not like an insulin level. So let's say it's a 10. Okay. And you start them on medications. So what are you anticipating? Let's say they're compliant. They you know cut out carbs, cut out sugars, taking their medication like they're supposed to. What are you expecting or what are you happy with as far as like an A1C drop in that first, say, three months? It's kind of a double-edged sword because, you know, we want to get them down to goal quickly, but there is a too quickly. If you drop them too fast, you're going to have retinal swelling and you can cause vision problems and vision injury that's not recoverable. So you you have to be a little bit careful. I am shooting for a drop of A1C of about 1.5% if I can get it. Most people, if they're compliant and they start out high, they're going to have a bigger percentage drop than somebody who is just above goal. And, And that's just the nature of the beast. So one of the things I tell my patients is don't go get new glasses because their vision is going to change. Interesting. Their sugars have been high. They're, they've got a little bit of swelling in the retina. Whether they've developed retinopathy or not, you're going to see retinal changes. Now, as they get the sugar gets under control, those changes should reverse as long as they don't have a proliferative or a significant retinopathy, whether it's proliferative or non-proliferative. And then what about your, like your older populations? Because you know, there are some schools of thought that say that they should maintain a higher A1C just because of higher risk for hypoglycemic episodes in, in your elderly populations? It's a lot safer to have them run high than it is to have them run low. Goal is anywhere from 7 to 8.5. I generally am shooting for 7.5 to 8, and it really depends on the patient. And that's kind of an interesting cornerstone of care that we've got now is really individualizing treatment to the patient instead of trying to do the cookie cutter 
across the way with everyone sees this, we've got to do this. If it's, if we see this, we've got to do that. It's really individualizing things to the patient. And I think that is probably one of the bigger changes that we're seeing. The other thing is these drugs are not without risk. Initially, the SGLT2 inhibitors had a black box warning about increased risk for amputations. That has since been removed, but there's still a vascular risk. You've got to be, you've got to pick your patients on them. There's a risk for euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis. So with these medications, and that's the one, that's the one that will sneak up on you and really end up biting you and end up with your patient in the hospital and DKA. And that's bad. Yes, bad. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I was clear for everybody. It's every bit as dangerous as uh, DKA in patient with diabetes, with type 1 diabetes. But it's a little bit more sneaky because their sugar is in range. The pathophysiology on it, it's believed to be secondary carb to carb deficit resulting in generalized decreased serum insulin. And with the decrease in the serum insulin, you get compensatory counter-regulatory hormones like glucagon, epinephrine, and cortisol that um, are secreted or inhibited, as the case may be. They end up getting into an acidotic state without going through all the steps. They end up in an acidotic state. You're going to see it on on lab as an anion anion gap metabolic acidosis. So you're going to see your anion gap go up, up to 10 to 12, 14. And if you've got somebody with diabetes who's sick and your lab comes back with anion gap that is up, you've got to immediately be thinking about a metabolic acidosis, especially if they're on an SGLT2 inhibitor and they're going to go to, they're going to the ER. That's not a fix at home. Last we talked about this, I know, I think we briefly mentioned like CGMs. Is that in Increased in your practice as far as the usage? I know with Medicare, it's still a pain in the ass to get CGM approved. Uh, private insurance, not quite as much, depending on the insurance company. The insurance companies you're dealing with are much more uh, friendly than the insurance companies we're dealing with here. The recommendation is to use a 14-day CGM to help with glucose management. And any patient with any insulin, period. Full stop. Doesn't matter if it's basal only. Full stop. The recommendation and guideline is to use it. Good luck getting it approved. If you've got if you've got a secret tip, I would love to have it because it it is a lot of arguing for me to get it approved for patients. I think I've got it approved for three patients. Otherwise, patients are paying cash for it. I have spoke to the reps for companies that provide these you know technologies. One of the things I don't understand or Again, you're the expert. That's why we have you on the show. Is why do you think we see lobbying in everything? Why do you think these companies aren't pushing harder for these approvals? Like, why don't you think the CGM companies are coming out saying, hey, these are the guidelines? Why are insurance companies still not? Do you think it's just a cost? I think you're looking at money. I'm not trying to bash insurance companies because for all the negative press and publicity they get, they can be helpful. You know, it's really easy to to sit and bash them, but at the end of the day, people trying to afford to pay cash for these and pay cash for their disease management, they would go bankrupt with it. So, yeah, there are some things that insurance companies do that that I agree is probably pretty shady and not necessarily the way I would hope to see people run a business. But I think at the end of the day, they do work a little bit for the patient. But that being said, their job is to protect their shareholders and generate revenue. And you have technology that is going to cost money for a disease that costs money and a disease that people are not necessarily the greatest at managing because of the choices that they make. So the disease just gets more and more expensive. I think at some point, some of these treatments and some of these uh, monitoring tools that we have are viewed as almost luxuries. Do you think that that outlook is ever going to change? Or do you think that's just a time thing? Like as we use them more and we show that what the companies are saying is actually true. And I, I have a couple patients on CGMs and I will tell you, they are way more able to adapt and track what's going on and keep me up to date and, and do their care with this technology. So we know on the ground and the patients know 
that these are effective tools. So do you think it's just a simply a matter of time before companies can't argue it anymore? Or do you think there's going to have to be? I think that as time demonstrates improved control and a lower cost, but because that's what they're looking for. They're looking to pay as little as possible. If we can demonstrate through outcomes that these are going to lower their cost in the long run, then they're going to jump on board. But part of that is going to be having patients on board with managing their disease effectively. Unfortunately, I think that's the variable that's holding us back. And that's nothing against the patient themselves. It's just human nature. We're dealing with human beings. Yeah, that's the nature of this beast. We've talked about this before. I've, I tell my patients, I'm not going to tell you you can't have something because that's the quickest way for you to give me the finger and go out and get it. I'm going to tell you, you can't have an A1C of 6.5. I'm going to tell you. you. <laughs> yeah, I wish that would work. <laughs> I am going to ha- tell them and talk to them about portion control and changing the quantity of food that they eat. You can look at a piece of cake and you can say, I really want a piece of cake. Stop and think, do I want the piece or do I just want to taste it? Because you can take just a fork of it, get the taste of it, and satisfy that urge for that sweet. If you can explain to patients that they will get some satisfaction with that. And the other thing is, if they fall off the wagon, we as providers need to quit beating them up. You failed this, you failed that, now we've got to do this. So insulin becomes a punishment or adding a medication becomes a punishment instead of looking at it as a progressive disease. We've got to meet people where they are. And there are still providers who beat people up. And I can see that happening. I I guess I've never really thought about it because I don't look at it like that. And I try not to approach my patients like that. But having you say it out loud, I'm like, yeah, I can see how some patients would see insulin. Oh, absolutely. As like, oh, you're a failure. So since you've got failure on you, I got to get you the anti-failure drug. And I understand that's probably how some people approach it. But I'm trying to take the other course. And I also really like what you just said. I think it's very important for us to talk to our patients about expectations of what they're doing. Like the cake, for example, is, well, the expectation is you're not going to want the whole piece if you taste it. That's why we're trying to get you to do this. I think that's a really good way to manage it. I just don't think we have done it enough. And we had another guest on long, not long ago who is a rep for a company that does work with CGMs. And one thing she said is something I think Ben and I were already doing is I start with diet and lifestyle. Or if a patient is like right on that cusp of like, like, oh, man, you're like, a, you know, seven, three, you know, like we're doing great. You know, we're doing all this stuff. And they're like, well, can I just go up a little bit on my medication? I'm like, no, but you can go a little bit down on your carbs. You know, like that's really the difference. The difference is the medicine at this point. You are. You're the difference. And so that's how I try and approach it with my patients is your diet is really the foundation of the treatment, not just the drug. And I, I, I have seen, honestly, some very good results approaching it like that with my patients and explaining to them that drugs are very helpful and they're life-saving and there's nothing wrong with them, but they're not magic. You have to do something. Yeah. If all we do is keep going, if all we do is increase the medication, then that's all we're going to keep doing. Correct. And then eventually we're going to run out. And I've tried to explain that to them. Eventually there is a stop. Okay. You know, yeah, I know you think 50 units of insulin is good. So 55 must be great. No. And there is a finite amount that you could put into yourself. So I I guess that's one of the ways I look at it. I don't know if everybody else ever has, but that's how I've always tried to approach it. And I've never thought about it as a punishment that, but I think that's a really good point. And I need to keep that in mind when I'm discussing with patients because, and I think there is a difference though. I have had patients that I think they were afraid Uh of insulin or have heard bad things of insulin or like i said there's the classic my brother works with a guy who had a cousin who you know whatever the point is is that is sometimes the stigma we're fighting versus the patient that's just like well i'm not going to do it because i don't want to now that's a different problem for me but the stigma i think we can do a better job of education and not beating people up over. well and the other thing is depending on your timing and your rationale for starting insulin it doesn't necessarily have to be permanent yeah and i've tried to explain that too is if we can improve things we can start like if we're on triple therapy Because that is, I got to be honest, Jeff, that's one of the big surprises to me is how many people I'm like, well, let's test your A1C. Wow. I was not expecting, you know, 10.2 like that. Uh Just, you know, wow. It's amazing to me how many people are over nine. And I try and tell them, 
you know, we look at levels like seven is one of the things. Nine is when we started getting a little hanky, like, oh, boy, hey, wait a second. We really need to do something. This isn't kind of cut out a piece of cake time. This is we've got to do some work. It's at that point when I try and explain to him, though, it doesn't have to be permanent or we can adjust it. But the problem is, is getting that work in. And I think sometimes that frustration on the patient side leads to inactivity and wanting to comply. And I know you don't like that word, but that's just what I'm used to saying. I know. It's it's become jargon and and it's accepted. It's just people have a choice. And if we're saying compliant versus non-compliant. Oh, I understand. I get what you're saying. I just, I've used it so long that like you said, it's my jargon. I can't not say it. Like, I'm pretty sure that's how I document it. Like he's compliant. He's not compliant, et cetera. So you might consider chooses not to. Yeah. I've, I've put refused a couple of times. Yeah. This patient it, refuses to use insulin. Like that's gone in a couple of charts. Well, and again, if you stop and think about, it's a really judgmental way of saying, of doing it though. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that. Yeah. I, I'm not saying you're wrong, but when this is, and I, I'm not saying I shouldn't change and I will look at it, but at the same time, when I go, Hey, sir, here or ma'am, you know, here are all the facts. And they're like, yeah, I just don't like it. I'm like, to me, that's a refusal. <laughs> I guess, I and, guess and that's I've, the. And I've had that patient too. And what I end up documenting is that conversation. We discussed initiating insulin for management. Patient states that he, he elects not to, does not want to take the medicine. You know, and I'm not saying I'm not going to look at it, but here's one thing. And I literally just thought about it while we were talking about this, Jeff, is with all the new legal recourses that have come against nurses and soon to be practitioners in, uh, in American society currently, honestly, from a legal standpoint, I might put refused. And here's why. If you put chooses not to, it sounds like, oh, he may not have had all the facts in front of him. He just like, oh, I gave him a choice. If I say from a medical standpoint, you will get worse if you do not do this and he does not do it. That is a refusal. And that's a legal jargon to help protect me if this goes forward. And so I'm not saying anybody out there, I am not a lawyer. I am not giving legal advice. I am saying if I were for me, for documentation purposes, there may be people that, Hey, we discussed alternatives and they chose not to go with it versus the person. And I'm like, you are at, you know, again, we'll throw out a random number over 10. And I laid out all the facts and he is just like, I don't care what you say. I think I might go with the CYA on my charting on that one versus. And in, in those in those cases, what I do is I document what I talked about specifically. That I, I we talked about the risk for cardiovascular injury, risk for kidney injury, risk for amputation, risk for blindness, risk for death. Patients elects not to start medication at this time. I, I think I could I think I could hang with the elects not to as long as all that's documented. I'm just saying I when I put in there we discuss thoroughly, you know, that's a quote I've used several times or yeah. every you, you know be, multiple you aspects. Specific. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think it it's going to be very interesting now that I think about it, how risk management gets involved with our charting going forward from here. And they might start saying Look, whether you like it or not, you need to put elects not to or refuses. I don't know how it's going to fall. I I just definitely think with the litigation that is starting to just insidiously attack us, I might add. Like it seems like it's coming from the inside out now. It just I'm like, it just feels like it's everywhere. Um, yeah, I don't think it. I don't think it's targeting nursing in particular. I think it's. I think it's. I think healthcare has had kind of a had been kind of bulletproof for a long time that you know what happens inside the hospital walls has been magically safe and protected on both sides of the fence you know we were <laughs> nurses are about the only profession that accepts being assaulted as a as a function of our job and employers look the tend to look the other way when it happens until we start prosecuting that so my standpoint is if you're assaulted at work, make a case of it, period. Double-edged sword. I mean, yeah. we've, talked, we've talked about workplace violence on here, and I'm sure we will again. And I can't say it enough to anybody that's listening, anybody. If you're assaulted, I don't care where it's at. You're assaulted. And that needs to be handled appropriately. And by God, if you're not willing to stand up for yourself, no one else is going to do it for you. So if you're a healthcare worker and you've been in that spot, and I know you have been, 
I hope you're listening to what we're talking about tonight, not just for diabetes, but for your, but for a profession. So anyways, let's get back on track here. So Ben, what next great question do you have? Oh, wait a second. We're out of time. Yeah. I was going to ask Jim, like, so any final thoughts before we jump into to our last okay. segment? So when do you guys start screening? At what age? I honestly, Jeff, and I'm sure you're about, I'm sure someone's about to jaw drop here in a minute. I go off the patient and what's being reported and what symptoms we're having and if, if it's necessary. I don't know that I have ever just said, oh, here you go. You're going to get an A1C today because. Okay. Same. Probably the same. Yeah. I don't necessarily screen an A1C unless we're pulling blood work for like, you know, your CBC, CMP lipid and their glucose is crazy high. Then I'll go ahead and pull an A1C. Yes. If they're glucose, the only other time I try and pay more attention is honestly probably late 20s, early 30s. Around that time is when they start going, well, I've noticed I've been more fatigued or whatever. Insert whatever generic, you know, thing you want to. Then if the blood work comes back, I'm like, hey. We need to do some stuff, but I'm waiting for you to tell me what I should be doing. The ADA, so what, the ADA recommends that adults who do not have diabetes symptoms should be screened for prediabetes and type 2 diabetes starting at age 35. And this came after the USPSTF recommendation came out last summer to drop the screening age from 45 to 35. So the ADA has gone along with it. I did. I haven't looked at the A, the ACE recommendation, but I'm going to guess it's similar. The other thing, to your point, looking at body habitus, looking at lifestyle, that gives you a clue that hey, maybe I need to draw lipids and glucose and see where they are. The other thing I, I look at is when a patient tells me that they've been losing weight but really haven't been doing much for trying, and that's the. And that's that bad news thing where you're saying, I know you've lost weight, but here's what's, here's what's happening physiologically and what your body's doing. And here's what my fear is to, just to prepare them. And invariably, it comes back with the wrong answer. I had that happen. I had that happen the week before last. It, that is one, like I said, that's one of the things or when people are just like, you know, I just keep peeing all the time. I'm like, well, guess what? <laughs> you thirsty too? See, yeah, I exactly. can't drink enough water. It's like, well, that's yeah. a problem. Yeah, but see, hold on, Ben. That's the catch. They never say I can't drink enough water. They're like, man, I drink like 12 Mountain Dews a day. I'm like, well, listen here, Chucko. <laughs> and I do remember the guidelines on checking lipids and stuff, and it was 35. So I guess I never thought about automatically adding an A1C to it. But it's definitely a that age range. If they start mentioning some symptoms, I'm like, ah, okay. We're, we're definitely throwing that on. They're not specifically saying check an A1C. If you look at the standards of care in, for diabetes management, it's actually in chapter two of the book where, it cha- where they talk about screening. Sorry, I'm nerdy enough to know that. No, I'm, off the I'm top writing of my it down. Head. Well, yeah, no, I was just reading that the other day. I mean, it's a page turner. I mean, it's right up there. It's a regular Dan Brown novel. But. I'm going to go ahead and make a note here in front of me <laughs> to check that out, maybe in more detail. Chapter two. Do you remember the page number? No. Okay. I just thought maybe I'd ask. So. Good try. Yeah, Excellent you. effort. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Tom, anything you want to Oh, go ahead. Jeff. Of course, uh, you, you asked for the last point. Sorry. Weight management is big on it. There is. There are recommendations when you've got somebody with prediabetes that make an excellent case for starting medication to try and prevent progression to type 2 diabetes. I have one patient that didn't tolerate metformin that I have on a GLP-1 receptor agonist to help with preventing progression of disease and supporting weight reduction. It took a little bit of work with the work with the insurance company, but it only took one good le- one letter to get them to approve it. That is the most shocking thing I've heard tonight. That right there. Well, the, you're you're saving them money in the long run. Well, and again, that's one of the things I don't understand. Is we've talked to a guest on the show about continuous glucose monitoring. I've talked to reps from those companies. We can show if you use this equipment and you do these things. Though it costs a lot of money now, over the period of their life, how much money they'll save. And it almost seems to me like they're just betting on them dying 
so that they don't have to fork out the money in the long run. So they're going to save money now and later. And that to me is the shady part you were talking about earlier. That makes yeah. me frustrated. Yeah. If you look at the GMI on those meters, they correlate really closely to A1C. And you, your patient can go online and look at that and see where their progress is. And you can look at the, you can look at it as a provider or have them in your practice and you can look and see what time of day they're having trouble and you can tailor your care to keeping them out of trouble. I had a guy, I had a patient that we could not get his A1C down to save our lives. Started at a CGM. He's now got an A1C of 6.2. And it's, I mean, it's because we could see where the problem was. We modified our, our treatment plan to address the problems. It's almost like we had the technology, and once you were allowed to use it, you could help the patient. Yeah, it's funny how that works. Fucking amazing, man. Yeah. yeah. It's fabulous. Fabulous. <laughs> yeah. It's like a plan, and it came together. And yes. That's how it's supposed to work. Yeah. All right, Ben. We got one more segment. Let's get to it. All right. So our final segment, since we don't need to do five questions with Jeff because he's already been here multiple times. Although oh, I wanted to do five questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to ask you questions at the end. So, I mean, you still get eight, one yeah, question. We, we're, yeah, you can still get questions. Just not so, five. this is our second opinion segment. And what this is, is on all of our social media sites, we put out a question that requires an answer with the response and like a, an explanation with it as well. So, this portion's or this second opinion segment's question was if you were an Easter candy, what Easter candy would you be and why? By the way, Jeff, we didn't do this on purpose for the diabetic specialist yeah. picking Easter candy. It, it just yeah. happened to be. It just, yeah, it's, it's yeah. just a giant coincidence. It never would have happened that way. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be, I'm going to say peeps. Why? They are loved and hated. There you go. All right. Yeah. Uh, you got people who they're absolutely despise them think they're the most disgusting things on the planet and some people that think they're just fabulous and you know that's the way people view human beings some of them we think they're fabulous and some of them we wouldn't want to have anything to do with to be careful how that phrase ended up yeah <laughs> so tom think about your answer i'm going to read some of the ones we got online and you know we'll, we'll just kind of go through some of these so over on Instagram, burn.np says, I would be a starburst jelly bean because they are delicious. Oh, I gotta love this jelly beans. Black licorice. Mm. Ugh. Oh my gosh, there's something wrong with you. Oh my gosh, there's something wrong with you. Oh, yeah, something's wrong with me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Olivia said, probably a peep because I look cute, but I'm actually disgusting. <laughs> Thank you, Olivia. Getting into some more of these. Over on Facebook, Debbie said, a peep because I love them. Kevin from Art of Emergency Nursing said, you know, whenever Easter comes around, I can't keep those peeps from sticking to me. I'm a chick magnet, which I thought was hilarious. Oh, God, that's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) But yet funny. It is great. Yeah. My sister said. We, we, we We can go with funny. (laughs) <laughs> my sister said Reese's just because peanut butter is her favorite pantless Jen had two answers Tom her first answer was she could be a Reese's egg full of sugar and fat with a touch of saltiness okay and her second answer was people think uh, peeps people think either that I'm awesome or they hate my living guts so that was pantless Jen Sunny said Cadbury cream egg of course and I'm going to read this whole answer for you. Oh, thank well, I have to. Single serving, though there's plenty okay. to share, available all year. <laughs> and I mean, the sweet filling speaks for itself. So. <laughs> How do you argue with that one? You don't. You just say, don't. Good yeah, answer. Don't. That is. Yeah. <laughs> you need a different that, rating. Yeah, that <laughs> filling. I was like, well, yeah. Carrie said a stale peep looks like a sweet exterior, but hardened on the inside. Like most healthcare workers. I'm not going to lie. That's actually one of the answers I wrote down was a stale peep quote, like the exact same answer. 
Well, not the reasoning was different, but the same candy. So, and then Tom, the last one, this guy named Tom that comments a lot on a lot of our posts. I don't know. Uh, candy corn. He said it's so sugary that people can't stop eating it until they throw it all up. So, how is that an Easter candy? Tom, I, I cry foul with with Tom. That is that's 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 fall. That's a fall candy that has been bastardized and moved to Easter. It's a money making conspiracy. But I think in this case, you're furthering his conspiracy theory. He's saying, "Yeah, yeah, I, I'm everywhere. I make your life disgusting." Yeah, that describes that man. I know him. So yeah, that's a yeah. good description right there. <laughs> I think they're only delicious in the fall. Yeah. Oh, that's so it's the weather that determines your sugar tooth. Yes. That's a new one. Okay. Of course. Candy corn should only be eaten in the fall. I don't care what what anybody says. Well, it may only should be, but it's everywhere, Jeff. And it needs to be chased with black licorice. Oh, God. That. I don't know about <laughs> that. All right. Wrapping up second opinion, what is what Easter candy would you be and why? Okay. So I'm between three, and I don't know. Okay. I said stale peep, which uh, that just blows my mind. But realistically, it's because I look appetizing to some people, but really I'm just there to ruin your life when you get a hold of me. So that's what a stale peep would do. So I'm like, okay. I like the Reese egg. That's another one. Reese's egg. I thought about that because my theory was I'm just as good as the other guys. I'm just shaped different. So there you go. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's see. That's good. I thought, yeah. I thought you guys would like that one. The last one was a Kinder egg. What's a Kinder egg? It's like the chocolate eggs that are hollow. They used to have like little toys inside. They're from outside Europe. the United States. They have a toy inside of the egg. Yeah. In, in America, they don't. But if you go yeah, anywhere just, else in the rest of the world. might choke to death on that. That's exactly like, what I was going to say because I'm going to fucking yeah. choke you. So there you go. So that's why I'm a Kinder egg. Jeez. You think you want me and then you get me and I end up, you know, ruining your life. So, you know, either way around, if you notice a pattern, <laughs> that's what. Yeah. I don't know between the three. I think the Reese's egg, but I can't rule out Kinder egg either. Fair enough. Fair enough. I think mine uh, would be a jelly bean because everybody, because I guess because of my size, they tend to be really scared of me. Like when they first meet me, like I've had like front desk staff members and other offices cry when they like, because they're afraid to talk to me because I'm this big, scary guy. I'm not. I'm like this like, soft and sweet guy on the inside. So like, I think that's what a jelly bean would be. So like I had this like hardened looking exterior, but I'm really sweet on the inside. Yeah. He's hard on the outside, but he's really filled with gelatinous sugar. There exactly. you go. Well, I mean, yeah. I, then we're getting back to the filling again. <laughs> I can stand up and do the belly roll for you if you'd like, but. Uh, oh God, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, it is way too late or way too early. It doesn't matter what time of day. <laughs> Both are equally, yeah. That wraps up second opinion. So we will have another question out on social media here in the next coming weeks, and we look forward to reading some more answers on the air. So on that note, Tom, you got anything else to say before we wrap it up? Not really. Jeff, is there anything you want to plug, want to talk about before we get off the air? You know, I, I would say this. We've been through hell the last two years, and there are a lot of days it's easy to be short and snappy with each other and really be harsh and judgmental on our coworkers or our front desk person. It's time to spread some love. Like, like uh, Ben was saying earlier, it's, you know, taking a step back, realizing that they've been through the ringer too. It's not just us and maybe just trying to figure out how to be nice to each other for a while. That was very eloquent. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. I say, and I think Jeff said if you send him a copy of the diabetic guidelines, he would sign them for you. And, uh, back, so. <laughs> uh, that was nice, Tom. <laughs> On that note, way to ruin a moment. I know, right? <laughs> Asshole. Stale peep. Stale peeps back in the running. So there you go. <laughs> On that note, wash your hands, wear your mask, take care of each other, have a nice week. Hey, everybody, make sure you stay safe out there. Swearing just to pass the time Lately I see why I am alone I caught some road bridge and I thought of you And 
Same without you